Good evening and welcome to the Marion Minor Cook Athenaeum. My name is Sophia Cravazzi and I'm one of your Athenaeum Fellows this year. It's safe to say that there is no shortage of conversations surrounding Trump's presidency, especially here on a college campus full of students with bright minds. Politics are complicated to comprehend and difficult to talk about, and having an understanding of what is occurring in the political sphere is crucial should you want to create a perspective of your own and participate in this political dialogue. Our speaker this evening, Michael Shear, is here tonight to discuss his book, Border Wars, and share his perspectives on the wild ride that has been the Trump, pres Trump presidency thus far. In Border Wars, Scheer and his co-author, Julie Hirschfeld Davis, document how President Trump and his allies blocked asylum seekers and refugees, separated families, threatened deportation, and sought to erode the long-standing consensus in favor of immigration. Border Wars describes how Trump planned, stumbled, and fought his way towards changes that have polarized the nation, and Scheer and Davis argue that his decision-making is marked by gut instinct, disorganization, paranoia, and a constantly feuding staff. Michael Shear is a 1990 graduate of Claremont McKenna College, where he majored in government and journalism. He later received his master's degree in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and he's a veteran political correspondent in Washington. He spent 18 years at the Washington Post, where he wrote about local, state, and national politics, and was even a part of the Pulitzer Prize winning team that covered the Virginia Tech shootings in 2007. He is now a White House correspondent at the New York Times. He will be joined tonight by two student interviewers, Melanie Wolf and Sophia Robinson from the Free Food for Thought podcast. Their conversation will be recorded and posted wherever podcasts are available. All the more reason for you to refrain from audio and visual recording. Yes, per usual, it's strictly prohibited, and silence and put away your mobile devices. Now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Michael Shear to the afternoon. So, Mike, welcome back to campus. Thank you. Awesome <laughs> I hope to it's be nice here. to there's, be back. There's different chandeliers, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, so we already got sort of a short introduction about the book, um, and we're just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how that idea came about and when your normal daily reporting started to morph into an idea for a full book. Sure, sure, happy to. Thanks for being here, everyone. Um, we were talking earlier and they said that they were going to ask me this question, so I was thinking about kind of how to, in a short, encapsulated way, describe how we ended up, how Julie and I ended up writing this. Um, I have been a White House reporter for almost 11 years, and a lot of that has, time has been spent on immigration, even before Trump was on the scene. There were a lot of immigration debates in, um, in, uh, during the Bush and Obama years as well. And Julie, my colleague, who wishes she could be here, but is running, uh, she's our congressional editor and running our impeachment coverage, so she's back home. Um, but uh, so she did the same. She covered immigration too. And so when Trump came along, we sort of happened to be the two sort of White House reporters at the New York Times for whom every time there was an immigration story when he imposed the travel ban a week into his administration or tried to stop refugees from coming into the country, the two of us were always the reporters that the editors would come to and say, can you write that story? Um, and by the end of 2017, uh, there had been so much immigration stuff that had happened already that our editors said, look, take a few months, take a couple of months and write a big story about, um, about sort of what it all means and what he's done and what it all means for America. And I'll tell you the story of one dinner that we, so Julie and I set out to talk to as many people as we could about Trump and immigration that year. And, and at one dinner, we sat down with a gentleman who was a source that we had 
sort of somebody had said, hey, you got to talk to this person. And over the course of a three-hour dinner, he's, we, he, we eventually, he eventually kind of loosened up, and he, he, he started telling us about this story of an Oval Office meeting that he'd been in with Donald Trump in which uh, Stephen Miller, Trump's kind of immigration guru, had gotten him all spun up about uh, the number of people getting visas from different countries and how many people were pouring into the United States from all these different countries. And he had a list of how many visa, visas from each sort of country by country breakdown. And Trump just was getting more and more angry. There's all these, the people in the room were people like the Secretary of State and Chief of Staff and Secretary of Defense and the whole crowd. And, he, and Trump is getting more and more angry and more and more frustrated. And he suddenly pops off and says, Haitians, why do we need Haitians? They all have AIDS. And then he looks down the list and he says, uh, uh, the Iraqis, they're all terrorists. And then he looks down and he sees Nigerians and he says, we don't want any Nigerians. If they come here, they won't want to go back to their huts in Africa. And this room full of people, of, of sort of government officials, their jaws are on the floor, right? Like, this is not the way a president talks and acts. And for us at dinner that night, over many glasses of wine with this, with this person, um, we were similarly stunned. And that story became the lead that, that anecdote of the president in the Oval Office, which had never been told before, became the lead of that story, which ran like two days before Christmas on, in 2017. It was a very long story, but that was sort of the thing that captured everybody's attention. And um, I think uh, the story, we felt good about the story. We felt like we had captured the sort of some of the high points of what the president had done with immigration and what his motivations were and what his agenda was. Um, and shortly after the beginning of 2018, Julie and I were sitting at a bar over a couple of glasses of wine and started talking about that story and talking about that moment, that interview especially. And we said to each other, there's, there's got to be more stories like that. Like we've only scratched the surface. And the, the genesis of the book was essentially that idea, was to say, let's, let's you know, we think both retrospectively, there's got to be more stories about how, that, that can help explain how the president views immigration, why he's doing what he's doing, and, and the mechanics of how do, you, how do you take that agenda, which really kind of was a 180 in where the country was, was headed on immigration, how do you, how do you me mechanically turn a bureaucracy around that much? Um, and then looking forward, we sort of guessed at the beginning of 2018 that like he wasn't going to stop, that there was going to be more to come, um, and that there would be more moments like that. We had no idea. I mean, we our our our, um, our our conversation over at the bar was like a week before the uh, shitholes meeting when he talked about shithole countries um, and not wanting people from shithole countries. I mean, it just, and then it, and that, you know, then the family separation crisis at the border and everything else that ha has happened since then. Um, and so I think in the end, we ended up talking to about 150 people, um, administration officials mostly, but also, you know, lawmakers and, and others um, for the book. And I think what we're most proud of is that we feel like, um, our goal that we set that day of like finding, uh, finding, really getting inside the administration and how 
uh, on this issue. Um, and, and, and then I guess just, and I'll shut up then, but the second thing is that we also thought that there had been, by the time we started, started talking about the book, that there had been so many attempts, both in daily journalism but also in some books by that point, to um, describe the chaos of the Trump presidency. And our feeling was we didn't want to be another book that was just describing the chaos inside the Trump presidency for chaos sake. We thought like, we knew that, that this would end up, sh we hoped this would end up shedding light on the chaos, but that it would do it through an issue that's really fundamental to the United States. Who we are as a nation, how we treat people who come into the United States, how, what, the what the face of our country is to the rest of the world, is like, you know, fundamental to kind of who we are as a people, and has roots that go back you know, these waves of immigration followed by backlash, followed by more waves of immigration, and we're in one of those cycles at the moment. And we thought, what better way to help people understand this president and how he acts and how he makes decisions than to do it through an issue that matters so much. So that was sort of the genesis of the book. Uh, one of the things that comes through in the story you just told and uh, really throughout the book is the level of detail-oriented storytelling and um, as stylistically, you don't say who said what, oftentimes throughout the book, but just have a lot of dialogue captured and an incredible amount of detail down to who was walking into Dean and DeLuca on one morning talking about <laughs> right. the issues. Uh, and so could you speak a bit about how you got that level of detail and what it was like talking to so many sources? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's something that I think we strive for in daily journalism too, but we sort of it's harder to get there be when you're on a deadline that's you know tomorrow's newspaper or even you know next week's newspaper. Um, part of it is the number of people that you can talk to when you're when you're um, you know trying to reconstruct a meeting in the Oval Office or a dinner. Um, you know the fact that you have enough time to talk to as many of the participants that, as you can find. Um, inevitably, people provide more detail than you know. Um, you know, the next person will provide a little a little nugget that you didn't know, and so you you're, you're able to kind of kind of pick all of the little details that other people have have all remembered separately, and then put them together and make sure they're right and and, and assemble a more complete picture. The other thing is that people are more willing. I mean, this was our experience anyway. People are more willing to be forthcoming. Um, when when you're when they know that the story that you're going to tell isn't going to come out for another eight or ten months or a year or what have you, and so it took us about ten months to write the book, and then it, there were a couple months before publication. So people generally knew that it was it was going to be a long time before the stories they were telling were going to be in print, and people just relax. <laughs> they just don't you know they don't. Um, clam up as much as, as what they do when you're saying, oh yeah, and by the way, this is going to be in the paper the next day. <laughs> um, and so um, it was a little bit easier to get that kind of detail out of it. Yeah. Another part of the book that was really interesting is there's almost some elements of comedy in the book surrounding a lot of like the chaos and miscommunication within the administration and certain people not knowing, the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing, yes. stuff like that. I'm wondering, for you personally, what was it like kind of walking this line between finding some comedy and humor in what you're um, reporting and also being appalled <laughs> at the state of this type of organization? Um, 
Yeah, it's it's a good question. Uh, you know, it's a serious topic, a serious book, and it has the it has the risk of just being kind of um, kind of so serious and weighty that like who would want to read it? And um, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to write an immigration book. You know, we're, there are some there are there are definitely stories, sort of human stories in here. We tried to inject some, but like we're not, our, our experience and our expertise was the policy side. We're in Washington, so we're not going to write a book that's chock full of the human stories at the border, right? We have a few of them, but like that's not where we are, that's not where our reporting is. And so we knew going into this, this is a book that's going to have lots of meetings and inside stories, inside the bureaucracy, that could be deadly dull. And so we looked for places where, you know, we could bring stories to life that um, you know, weren't the most weighty part of the tale, but like help people kind of, you know, have a little bit of, you know, kind of understand that, that um, you know, that they can sort of read and, and kind of have a chuckle or whatever. I think, I'm sure everybody heard the, um, the president's fixation with a moat along the border that he was going to have alligators and snakes in. I can tell you when, um, when we were interviewing for the book and, and the person who told us that story for the first time, we ultimately heard it by, from others, but we were having dinner. It was a, a late night dinner and, um, and you know, this person was telling us a lot and he got to the point where he said, where he said, oh yeah, you know, and, and then there was the moat. And, and Julie and I look at each other and we're like, the moat, <laughs> and he starts telling us about the fact that this was not a one-time thing. That this was, you know, he kept, you know, this. So this is one of the things about this administration and the way that this president acts is that this was these kinds of things that he talked about weren't sort of one-off things that he would mention and then never mention again. The moat, he, he would bring up the moat, and his people would say, "Mr. President, it's really not." Really, you're not, that's not, we shouldn't do a moat. He'd say, okay. And then like two weeks later, he'd bring the moat up again. And they would tell him, no, Mr. President. And then he, they would bring up, he would bring up the moat again. And finally, Kirsten Nielsen, who was the Homeland Security Secretary uh, at the time, finally got so frustrated about the moat that she actually ordered the Army Corps of Engineers to price out what it would cost to build a moat across 2,000 miles of the border. And they came back and they were like, at least three times the cost of his wall. And so then she could go back to Trump and say, Mr. President, it would cost three times as much, okay, and then I'll drop it. Um, but, you know, that was that, that um, anyway, so, so I think the moat, the, um, there's, a, there's a scene, do you guys know who Stephen Miller is? So Stephen is, is this intense, you know, kind of like his top Uber immigration aide. And um, there's a little scene kind of in towards the end of the book where, um, and this, has, this is nothing, this is not like the serious part. There's serious parts of the book, I promise. This is not one of them. <laughs> um, but where he and his girlfriend are going out to dinner for New Year's Eve in 2018 at the end of last year. And uh, they're out to eat at a fancy restaurant in DC um, and then a, a couple, a pair of women who are also eating at the restaurant see them 
Stephen gets up to go to the bathroom, and um, his girlfriend, who we didn't name in the book, um, is there, and the two women go up to her and start screaming at her. You, how can you be with this monster? He separates children. He kills babies. He, I mean, they're just like screaming at her. And she starts crying. And he comes out. And she says, we, we're leaving. And Stephen says, no, no, damn it. We're not being driven out of you know, our dinner. And, they say, and the two women finally leave. And they go back. And they post a, like an Instagram social media story saying, had a great dinner tonight, just got back from making sure that Stephen Miller didn't get laid tonight. <laughs> and that was there, that was the, and that's the end of one of our, one, uh, of one of our chapters. <laughs> and we debated back and forth about whether we should put that in, and ultimately concluded sort of for what you were saying, is that you, we needed some moments that people could sort of, uh, you know, that, that wasn't weighted down with policy. And so when it comes to stories like that, whether it's the moat or the restaurant, um, things that maybe only a couple people would really be in the loop, what was it like to decide you're on your verification standards? And what did you do in situations where you really heard different accounts of yeah. meetings that people couldn't necessarily substantiate other than the fact that they had been there and this was how they yeah. experienced that meeting? That's a good question. We took, we, there were mul many stories that we didn't put in the book at the end um, because we didn't feel like we had enough uh, confirmation of either, I mean, most things we sort of assumed had happened, but if we didn't feel like we knew the real story, then we left them out. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that was on the cutting room floor. Um, there were, a, there were a, one of the things we did at the end of the process was we took the 40, 35 or 40 sort of primary characters in the book, the people who appear again and again, and we sent each of them, whether we had talked to them or not, we sent each of them a long series of anecdotes and said, You're, it, this is what we're saying about you in the book. You're in this scene, this is what we're describing. You're in that scene, this is what we're describing. Some of them were six and seven and eight pages long because some of these people appeared again and again. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that generated like a whole new, like a month's worth of new reporting because people started calling us. Mm -hmm. They would get the fact check and they would say, oh, well, well, well I, I know I didn't talk to you about this yet, but you know what, that's not exactly the way. And, um, and many of the anecdotes that we had in the book originally um, got better, you know, because mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, we had had maybe five people in the room and now we had seven, or we had had three and now we had five, um, actually describing, and, and you know, the more people you have, the better you get. Um, and, and then the other thing, and we talked about this a little before, is that we had a rule for ourselves that if we only had one person describing a, um, a, a conversation, and or even more than one, but but nobody had notes. Nobody had contemporaneous notes. In those instances, we almost always paraphrased a conversation. We would sometimes describe the conversation, but it would be in a paraphrased form. The, the conversations where we actually have quote marks around what people said uh, tend to be either multiple people remembering the exact same phrases, and in, in almost all cases, people who had um, notes that they took or documents that, that memos that had been written which actually have conversation listed in them. Uh, people were good enough to give us a lot of emails that they had you know, traded back and forth, which, which often you know, recounted conversations that had, had taken place. 
Um, and then, and so we, we tried to be as aggressive as we could about being careful about not describing a scene that we weren't really confident was right. Yeah. So we want to pivot a little bit to talk about journalism at large and what um, reporting looks like under the Trump administration. So you've been working for the New York Times for quite a while, <laughs> and President Trump doesn't love the New York Times. He often directly attacks the New York Times. He's even tweeted that the New York Times is an enemy of the people, as I'm sure you're aware of. Um, we wanted to just ask you for some reflections about what freedom of the press has looked like in the past three years um, under the Trump administration and how journalism as a field has started to change in light of that. I mean, it's a big topic. I don't, you know, it's um, it's been it's been a, a, a different kind of environment that we've been operating in. And so I I covered all eight years of the Obama administration too, and um, uh, you know, it's easy to now sort of rose-colored glasses the Obama administration. It was no picnic either, and there were definitely times that, as a reporter, you would be frustrated that. Um, you know, the Obama administration either wasn't telling you what you wanted to know or wasn't being straight with you. There were, there were definitely frustrations. Um, but it, there was never an environment, we weren't, weren't operating in the kind of environment um, where, um, where the president and his people so routinely view us as the enemy. And I think, um, I think the danger for journalism broadly is, um, and I think it's happening, and, I, and I'm frustrated by it, but I think the danger is in, um, is, that, is that the reaction that journalists have is to, to sort of become the very thing that Trump is accusing them of, and to become the adversary that he imagines us to be. And, um, you know, I'm very old-fashioned in the sense that I don't think we should be in, in the position of fighting with the President of the United States. You know, if he, I have colleagues who disagree with me, um, and if he were here, he would admit this. Jim Acosta is the CNN chief correspondent, White House correspondent for CNN, and he's a friend, and, and I've known him for years. You know, he takes a different view of this. Like, he's constantly fighting with Trump in public. If Trump, you know, says, you're fake news, CNN, he's, in Trump's face. I don't think you ever win the fight with the President of the United States. And so, you know, to my way of thinking, if the President of the United States in a, in a news conference were to point at me and say, fake, you're fake news, New York Times, my answer should be, yes, Mr. President, but let me ask you about Syria policy, or let me ask you about immigration, or let me ask you about, you know, the economy. I mean, I just, I think, I think that the more we take the bait, um, and I think, I think, you know, too often we do. I mean, too often, we, you know, our answer is to like push back. And that's not to say that we don't, we shouldn't hold him to account. Absolutely we should. We should write tough stories. We should, um, we should uh, fact check him. We should call him out when he lies. We should call out, you know, the factual stuff that he does. And, and we should, just like we do any president, we should hold him to account for his policies. Um, so I'm not talking about going easy on him, but I also think that we should be reporting on him in the same way 
same tough way that we do all presidents, not you know, sort of suddenly becoming an, you know, kind of anti-Trump. Because once we become anti-Trump, the problem is he's won, A, he's proved, we're proving his point, and B, like, it's problem down the road. It's, you know, we, that's not, you know, Trump will eventually go away. I mean, whenever that happens, there will be somebody else and things will get back to normal and we need to be in a place where we're still, where we're still, where, where we're not on a side. Do you think, this is sort of a related question, but do you think that this is a new phenomenon to have the president sort of addressing reporters directly and having like this individual back and forth? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's definitely more, I don't know that it's 100% new, we, I mean, you know, but here's the thing, like most presidents, especially in the modern presidency, and Obama was this in spades, like they, most presidents erect this like incredible, incredibly disciplined wall around the president, right? I mean, it's, it's, all of his aides and the, and you know, I mean, the, the challenge covering Obama was penetrating that wall and trying to like get inside his head, right? Like trying to figure out what was Barack Obama really thinking about Afghanistan policy or what was he really thinking about immigration, deportation, or what was he really, you know what I mean? Like, and that was like the huge challenge because Obama was so disciplined and he was so, you know, he would come back on the, plane every now and then to talk to us, especially if we were coming back from abroad and we had a long flight and he would come back to talk to the reporters on the back of the plane. And he was even disciplined then. It was off the record. It was not to be published. And yet he was still like the veneer of Barack Obama was still there. Like he, was, he, he wasn't like shooting the shit and like talking to us, whatever. He was very, he was very disciplined and his aides were constantly trying to erect barriers. Trump is exactly the opposite, right? Like he just vomits on words on us, right? Like constantly, it's like, it's like, you know, every day you get up and you have like his id like pouring out like on Twitter and then like just when you think I'm just like, it's like 9 a.m. and I'm like so sick of Donald Trump telling me something, then he like goes out to the helicopter and like has a 35 minute press conference in front of the helicopter only to land wherever he's landing to give like a rally where he talks for like 90 minutes straight <laughs> and then comes home and like talks again when he lands. I mean, it's crazy. And, and um, you know, meanwhile, like we don't have any more briefings. We don't have, you know, those are gone. Um, and for probably for good reason, right? Because yeah. what, what spokesperson could compete with that? <laughs> right? I mean, I used to, I covered three press secretaries for Obama, mm -hmm. you know, and they, and, and they were the voice by and large, you know, with the exception of the occasional tr Obama speech, right, which Obama gave speeches, but like day to day, you know, Robert Gibbs or Josh Ernest or what, you know, they were the voice of the administration. But like if you, if you're Sarah Sanders, like, I mean, I can see why she stopped. I don't like it, but I can see why she stopped because you know, she would say something and then two minutes later, Trump would say it and we're not gonna quote her. Why would we quote Sarah when Sarah, Trump just said the same thing or worse or whatever, <laughs> so. Um, and so in light of the greater exposure you have to the president and the frequency with which you're quoting him directly, reacting personally to what he's saying as you have to listen to it for multiple hours of the day, have you found it more difficult to remain neutral as a journalist and are there ways in which you try and temper your writing to make sure that attacks or crit 
criticisms of what the president is saying don't come off as criticisms of the president right, like as an individual. Attack. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's harder. I, I mean, I think I think it takes more energy to. I mean, the pres this president um, tells so many untruthful things every single day that it's easy to start, I mean, we have to deal with that and we have to confront that and you can't, um, there's a, there a, definitely a, a, a theory of covering this president that you can't treat him like a normal president because if you do, you'll sort of normalize him and won't, you know, you sort of won't treat him the way he needs to be treated, which is to, which is to um, you know, really confront all of his lies and 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 that's true. Um, so I so I think that's one of the great challenges of news in newsrooms right now is, and and for example, our editor in chief, uh, Dean Baquet, has really struggled with this question of should we how many times should we actually use the word lie in stories? And his, his where Dean has come down, I think this is an accurate portrayal of what he would say, is that. You can't use, you can't label every single thing that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth that's a lie. You can't use the word lie every time or the word will lose its power, right? And so you can say, you can, you can, and we do this all the time, say he said this, that wasn't true, here's the facts, here's the reality, here's the context. Um, but. Dean has decided to reserve the actual semantic term lied, the president lied, for like a handful of really, really, really big moments. And we've done it a handful of times. And you know, that's not a popular decision on the left, especially. I mean, I unfortunately live a lot of my life on Twitter. And um, Donald Trump, every time he tweets, it beeps on my watch. <laughs> I don't recommend that. Um, but you know the left really has taken us to task saying that we should be calling him out for actually lying more often and it's a legitimate question i mean it's a legitimate debate and we're i think all newsrooms are struggling with it and so in light of the common struggles across newsrooms mixed with the adversarial relationship that trump has created between himself and a lot of you uh, do you think that that's had an effect on journalists relationship with each other and do you feel any more camaraderie or willingness to sort of share stories, defend each other, any of that? Yeah, I mean, thing? some. I mean, there's, there's we, we all sort of, um, there's a, especially the White House reporters, there's about 200, 350 of us that are sort of regular, everyday White House reporters. And I think there's a kind of a bonding that, that takes place when you go to a Trump rally and, um, <laughs> And you know the president looks in the back of it and says, "They're fake news," and then boo. And then, you know. The, <laughs> although the weird thing is, the weird thing is, I so the lead up to the 2018 midterm elections last year, um, the Times decided to send our White House reporters just to black, like Trump did these like I think he did like 15 rallies in four days or something in all these cities, and so we decided to go to all of them, and I went to I think three or four. And um, the, the goal was to like get to the rally two or three hours ahead so that you could sort of mingle with all of the Trump supporters as they're lined up, you know, waiting for the president to come. And so I spent a lot of time with Trump supporters those several days. And I mean, it's just weird, right? Like you, you're, 
you go up to somebody, you say, hi, I'm Mike Steer from the New York Times. Oh my God, hi, how are you? Can I talk to you a little bit about Trump? Sure, absolutely, you know, and they're all friendly. And like, really, honestly, to a person, those, all those days, they were, I mean, I never, I never felt like threatened. I, Never really. I mean, I don't think anybody said "Go away, I hate you." I mean, literally nobody. It was they was like, it was fine. And then the minute he comes in, and the lights turn on, and and he starts his you know, his shtick about us, like it's like they become different people, and they're oh, boo, you know, and they're pointing and whatever. And then the, and then he leaves, <laughs> and they're fine again. I don't know. It's weird. But yeah, we so just I'm sorry to answer your question. Yeah, there is like a there is like a camaraderie that that happens and I think we have you know, you sort of have to you have to uh, kind of band together a little bit. I think one of our final questions before we open that we want to leave a lot of time for general Q&A. Yeah. So one of our last questions we have is just where do you think that this book leaves us and what's next for you? So, and yeah, and it, happy to get into more actual immigration stuff if we want during the questions. I think, I hope that where the book leaves uh, people is, um, is, is that um, this president came in um, thoroughly unprepared. He, he had a gut instinct about immigration. He, he had a, um, he had a, uh, uh, a kind of bigoted and sort of xenophobic view of um, what he wanted in immigration, but he didn't have any sort of policy kind of apparatus to actually get it done. And the people that he brought in to implement his plans were almost all kind of from the fringe of, even from the fringe of Republican politics and didn't really have any experience actually getting something done. And so the the chaos that we describe inside the White House as he tried to put these policies together showed that they, they really struggled at the beginning. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to write these pieces of regulation. The regulations kept getting held up in the courts. Um, the, the kind of things that he wanted to do were draconian, but were also so kind of stupidly done that they, they weren't very effective. But what the, what the book tries to document is that over you know, two and a half years that are documented in the book, and I think this has just gotten even more so um, over, uh, over the course of the, you know, sort of in the months since the book was, was written, is that they, they learned. Um, you know, they learned both how to move people out of the way that were blocking them. So you know, um, there was a guy in the State Department who, was, who they ended up moving from you know, the head of the refugee office to the FOIA office, and then sent him to Puerto Rico um, to get him out of the way. Um, they did, a lot, did that to a lot of people, moving them out of positions that were, halt, you know, getting in the way of their agenda. Um, you know, people who said no to him, like Kirsten Nielsen, who kept saying, no, you can't have a moat. No, you can't shoot people in the legs to slow them down when they come across the border. Like, she got fired, right? I mean, they, so, they, and, and, and from a, um, mechanical or sort of a bureaucratic perspective, they learned how to like push regulations through, they learned how to write them better so the lawyers would approve them. And I think where the book ends is that um, they've, they've managed sort of 
to do two major things. One is to really take the spigots of immigration, legal and illegal immigration, which everybody knows about, but also legal immigration, and like turn down just about every spigot they could, and it's working. Immigration is really slowed to this country um, for, you know, for all the reasons that, that, they, that they want them to be slower. Um, and they've also really changed the, the sort of underlying kind of cons where, the, where the consensus was in this country. You know, we were headed to a place before Donald Trump where even the Republican Party had sort of concluded after, the, after Mitt Romney's loss in 2012 that, you know, the reason they lost was because they didn't have a, 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 a kind of outreach enough to minority communities, especially Hispanics. And they were sort of headed in a direction where they were going to fix that. And Donald Trump completely went the other direction. And, we've, and I think it's fair to say um, in Washington we're um, way farther from, we're, we're way more polarized than we used to be even three or four years ago. Not to say immigration was ever an easy issue. It was always tough. It was, you know, so-called comprehensive immigration bills never, never succeeded and they always had issues. Yet, I think we're way more polarized, and I think it's one of the things that, that I don't think um, is likely to snap back immediately the moment Trump is gone. I do think that one of his legacies is going to be um, leaving this, you know, this country both on the right much more, uh, much more uh, anti-immigrant, and in the process, having moved the left way farther left, right? So the, the the positions of most of the Democratic presidential candidates on immigration is way farther left than where the Democratic Party had been prior to Trump. And so, um, uh, not to leave things on a downer, but I mean, I do, I do think that that's, that's <laughs> one of the legacies of Trump and it's one of the, and one of the things we hope the book does is give people a, um, a roadmap that sort of how we got there, uh, because I think that's, you know, uh, you know as the immigration, debate continues and discussion continues, maybe knowing how we got there will help people have a, be able to talk about it more intelligently. Yeah, well said. And as you move forward, do you think that immigration is going to remain um, central to your coverage? I or? hope so, because it'll sell a lot more books. <laughs> um, now, I think, I mean, you know, look, it's funny. Um, you try to predict these things. Um, um, immigration and some of the stuff that he's done has, has sort of faded a little bit in these last few weeks as, as impeachment has sort of consumed all of the oxygen, which probably is going to be the case, I think, for several more months until that process runs its course. Um, but I, I have no doubt that, um, I mean, I know for a fact that Stephen Miller and, um, uh, and the rest of the kind of immigration uh, group inside this administration is continuing to work on this and to push the envelope and to do everything they can to uh, restrict immigration even further. I mean, they just capped, they're about to cap refugees at the lowest. This, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, I don't want to get too far, but you know, the number of refugees that were, maximum number of refugees that were going to be let into this country at the end of Obama's term was, had, had risen to 110,000 refugees in a single year. It's the highest it had ever been since decades. Um, the Trump administration 
lowered that from 110 to 50, from 50 to 40, from 40 to 30, and then this year they're capping it at 18,000. Um, at a time when there are more refugees in the country, I mean in the world, than ever before, and you know we're looking at a situation in Syria where you know the likelihood of another two and a half million um, uh, uh, Syrian refugees are likely to be um, kind of pushed out of Turkey and into that sort of nether world, nether, nether part of Syria, um, and um, you know so I think it's it's going to continue, and I and I and I and I absolutely have confidence that um, the closer we get to the 2020 election, you know, so assuming we're you know past impeachment and he doesn't get removed from office uh, and he's running for re-election, um, I, I suspect you will find you know, the invasion, the caravans, all of that will come roaring back. Um, and, and, um, uh, and, then, and then if he gets re-elected, I think, you know, uh, I think immigration and what he's trying to do and what we document in this book is gonna be, is gonna be even more. That's my guess. Well, with all of that to consider and a lot of <laughs> uncertainty wanna, yeah. in the balance, um, at this point, we'd love to turn it over to audience questions. questions. Awesome. Please raise your hand and Lala or I will bring the mic to you. Um, please stand up when you ask your question and please do try to keep them brief so we can fit a lot of you guys in. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for um, speaking to us today. My name is Hallie and I was wondering, how do you think Trump's rhetoric about immigration and in some ways ethno-nationalism in the United States has fueled this type of rhetoric abroad by foreign presidents, for example, Orban in Hungary? Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I should have this stat at my end, I don't, but I think um, um, the, um, our publisher has, has cited this stat that you know Trump's um, fake news um, sort of moniker has been repeated uh, like like I don't know it's like 80 dictators around the world or something have have that may be the wrong number I don't know what it is off the top of my head but there's some large number of dictators that have you know that you can go back and document their use of fake news in a way that that you know obviously had never they'd never done prior to Trump um, so and I think and I think the um, uh, I think his anti-immigrant sentiment is s similarly echoing across across the globe. Now, I, you know, I think causation is hard to know, right? Like the there are um, there have been long before Trump came around all sorts of issues of you know refugee crises around the world. I mean, we obviously saw them in Europe. Um, uh, during the kind of latter half of Obama's term, um, kind of surges in you know the sort of Syrian refugees in the civil when the civil war started. There, I mean, you know, these issues are not. I mean, it would be fool. It would be, you know, kind of ridiculous to sort of think that we invented all of this. Um, but I think he, you know, just like his rhetoric gives cover to people who are who sort of feel that way and want to express those kinds of. Uh, views in the United States, I think it does the same thing for, for other world leaders too. And so whether it's, you know, um, Boris Johnson or, you know, uh, other people who sort of have that same kind of populist bent and sort of have, have, have used the kind of us versus them 
rhetoric to get elected or to stay in power. Like I think it 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 is um, it's clearly heard. His rhetoric is heard around the world, and I think it I think it can't help but fuel uh, fuel that sentiment around the world. Hi, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, I think we can definitely all agree that the media has gone very, very interesting with this uh, administration. Do you think the public will have a hunger for more political drama and therefore elect more radical politicians? Huh. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a really interesting question. I've never been asked. I mean, I guess I could see it going both ways, right? They're, they're, I certainly feel it in my own life and in my own kind of community that people already have a fatigue, right? There's like enough drama already, like, like we want something less crazy, right? Putting aside politics, partisan politics or whatever, just the drama kind of gets on people. And so I could see, I could see the electorate um, pining for somebody less dramatic. Um, but on the other hand, I, I guess I could see that he has amped up the volume and the, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to imagine another president not kind of using some of the tools and some of the techniques and some of the tactics that he has so successfully used to drive home his message. Um, so maybe, maybe we're sort of destined to, to have a kind of new Politics. I think that's one of the big questions that I don't know the answer to is how much goes back to normal after he leaves. Um, you know, some things snap back immediately, I think, um, but some things don't necessarily, and I and I don't know. What else? Hi. Thanks for so much for coming to talk with us tonight. Um, as you know, some of the biggest public outcry over the Trump administration has been around immigration issues. And I was just wondering. Around, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Uh, around immigration. Yeah, around. yeah. Um, so I was wondering, in talking to people for this book, have you gotten a sense that that public outcry and the public opinion has affected him at all or affected people inside his cabinet? Or has he been stubborn and sticking to his positions? Yeah. So um, uh, one of the things that we, that we wanted to do, that Julie and I wanted to do from the day we started thinking about this, was to talk to Trump about this. Um, and so we, early on in the process, put in the request and said, we, you know, this is his topic, we should talk to him about it. And they didn't, and they didn't, they wouldn't let us, they wouldn't, you know, it was just never going to happen. And then at the very end, in June, our book was almost completely done. We had actually turned in our first manuscript. Um, and they finally said, okay, he'll talk to you. So we went in and we did a 35-minute uh, Oval Office interview with Trump on immigration uh, for the book. And it was the weirdest interview. He, it, was, it was one of the days, I don't know if you remember, the, the horrible f conditions in the Border Patrol facilities where the kids were you know, not being given toothpaste and dirty, being held in, you know, when the sort of surge of Central American migrants had come up. It was at the height of that. And um, we walk into the Oval Office, and and he was like in another world. It was he he was like everything was great, nothing you know. He was um, nothing was his fault. 
Uh, everything was Obama's fault. Obama was the one that separated kids, not him. Uh, DACA was, you know, uh, uh, he, he tried to save the DACA kids and we, and Julie and I sat there and we said, well, Mr. President, you were the one that ended the DACA program. And, oh no, you know, I, I tried to save it. It's the Democrats' fault. Um, and and I, I think what Julie and I were struck by the most was this sense of a ref, just a complete refusal to take any sort of sense of responsibility, or as you say, like to kind of even acknowledge the um, the the anger out there, or the or the or the the view of him by by a lot of the public, right? And like obviously not everybody, his supporters seem to not care, but. And then there was this one moment where I asked him, I said, well, Mr. President, do you worry that you will be known as a xenophobic, racist president? That's that that will be your legacy. And he said, no, no. And then he paused and he said, well, here, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the epigraph of our book. He says, uh, I said, it's your legacy. Will you be remembered as Donald Trump, the xenophobic president? He says, he says, I hope not because I'm not that way. I hope not. And then he stops and he says, I think you're right. I think the perception might be more that way than the other. I hope not. I would like to have a great immigration policy. I'd like it to be fair. I do not want criminals coming into our country. I don't think you do either. And, and we were just like blown away because it was like this like tiny flash of self-awareness that he was like, Maybe I will be remembered as a racist president, and uh, and then he, and then it went and then it sort of stopped and then he went back to sort of defending himself. So I, I mean, the, so it's a really interesting question. Do you think he's a? Fa I I think from a policy perspective, I don't think he's been. There's only been a hand, a couple of places where he's been affected by it. When when he sort of ended family separation, right? There, the Pope had been you know decrying it, and his wife hated it, and his daughter hated it, and. People, I mean, it was really, and that was like one of the few times where it seemed to affect him. Um, though he's in his mind now kind of reinvented it and he'll tell you that he was the one, that he, he was the one that, he never separated them in the first place, it was all Obama. Um, um, but I think for the most part, with the exception of that and maybe one or two other times, like he's, it just doesn't affect him. And from a policy perspective, he's, you know, there's no indication that any of the outrage, any of the sort of protests, any of the, you know, people calling him out on this stuff has affected it, and they're they're full speed ahead. Though I, I am still intrigued by like in his private moments whether he understands how he's how how that like this is going to be one of his. There's no there's no doubt in my mind that like twenty years from now when we're looking back at this presidency, you know, there this will obviously won't be the only thing he will be remembered for. But like I think what he tried to do what he did do and tried to do um, on this issue will be one of his big legacies. And I, I think at some level, he, he, he gotta see that. Hi, um, thanks again for coming. Um, so this is sort of a broader question, but I've noticed that um, media specifically has been getting a lot more polarized with the rise of the sort of divided rhetoric. So like you'll see that Fox News is like definitely obviously advocating for specific policies of Trump. And I was just wondering what you thought 
the role should be, if any, um, for media outlets to be advocating for or against certain administrations, leaders, or social issues? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think, I, uh, I don't think there's any, I think there is a, a role for advocacy for opinion journalism. And, um, as, and, and I think, you know, in newspapers we have opinion pieces, in um, uh, there have always been columnists who take a point of view. Um, I look at a Sean Hannity or a Rachel Maddow as essentially that, they're columnists. They are, they are opinion journalists and I think that's fine. I think the, I think the problem is when um, you, well, you lose sight of the fact that they're in a separate category and all news starts, starts polarizing uh, that way. And I think, um, I think we are in a dangerous moment where, uh, you know, people are reacting because of the way Trump is, has acted in part. I mean, this was happening before Trump was on the scene, but I think he's, he's added to it. Like, there is a tendency to kind of go to your corners. And I think, again, I'm sort of old fashioned, but like, I think, I think we need to try even harder in the face of Trump to be old fashioned about the news. I think there has to be places where we can all go, where we can agree that that table is round and not square, and that there's not a debate about that, um, and that we at least have some common set of understanding of what the facts are and of what has happened. And, um, you know, I worry about, uh, I worry about that in, in, the, in the effort to hold Trump accountable um, and to call him out when he lies, when, you know, and all of that, that we are seeming to become the, you know, we're, we're going too far, you know, whether that's the Washington Post, um, at times, whether that's CNN and MSNBC, which you know feels to me like they have sort of gone off <laughs> the deep end sometimes. You know, when you're watching them, and it's like, um, you know, so much of it is feels very anti-Trump. Um, the New York Times, I'm sure, makes those mistakes sometimes too. I mean, I think we're all struggling with how not to do that, how to be aggressive journalists, but not to become the enemy that he thinks that we are, um, and. Um, you know, and I and I think there's a responsibility from the the public too, the readers and the the viewers, um, not to to just seek out the stuff that validates their own opinions, and to try to seek out and be open to stuff that both challenges their opinions from the other side, but that also is just not that is just more factual. And 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 um, you know, one of the things that we Julie and I. Um, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough headline, I mean, a tough title, right? Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration. But when you actually read the book, like we, we don't ever come to a conclusion, Trump is a racist. We don't call him that. It's a very sort of fact-based book. It's a very, you know, we describe a scene, we say this is what happened. There's not a lot of pontificating from Julie and I about kind of, is this bad? Is he an awful man? Like we just don't do that, and it, because it's not appropriate, it's not, you know, it's not for us to judge. And we've taken a little bit of crap from the left on that because they, they, think, oh well, it should have been tougher or whatever. That's fine. I mean, that's that's this. That's where we want to be in our daily journalism. It was where we wanted to be in the book. Um, I actually think 
assault on immigration is what they view it as, right? I mean, I don't know that they, I think that inside the Trump administration, that's what they view themselves doing. So I'm not even sure they think it's as tough of a headline as I thought they would think. Um, but I, but I, I worry about where we are in journalism, and I hope that more of us will kind of resist the temptation to, to sort of think of ourselves as the, as the ad adversaries. Hello, um, thank you again for speaking with us tonight. Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, Trump is infamously prolific on Twitter, and this leads me to ask, do you think that phenomenons such as the, sh the shrinking soundbite um, have encouraged social media to be used as a political vehicle? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg, right? Like, I mean, did did the soundbite get smaller and then that made it easier for Twitter to be the vehicle, or was it the other way around that you know Twitter sort of emerged as a as a effective tool and and then politicians have sort of shrunk their messages to fit that medium? I don't, I don't know. Um, um, I think, uh, um, what was, what was the, there was a book that was um, written 20 years ago about sound by, called Spin Cycle, maybe? Anyway, there, there, I, mean, there, I mean, this has been around a lot longer than Twitter, is I guess my point, right? And I think technologies change, but the basic underlying political, sort of reality is always the same, which is that you know politicians are always trying to find a way to kind of go around the filters, the filters that are the media or whatever other filters that exist and get, you know, communicate directly to the public. Trump has obviously, uh, you know, made Twitter his tool in a way that nobody else has. But, I, you know, it's interesting, he, um, you know, at some level, it's not just Twitter. It's 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 the symbiosis of Twitter and the media, and you know, it, I, I'm not sure Twitter would have the kind of effect that it has if, when he tweeted, we didn't all then write about the tweets, and that the TV didn't put the tweets on the TV. I mean, it's 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 like it's all this big ecosystem, um, you know, and and a lot of what he tweets, he then also talks about in his rallies. He also talks about when you know he has these impromptu press conferences. The cameras are rolling in the cabinet room for an hour and a half. I mean, you know, I got to tell you, like, I covered years of cabinet meet Obama cabinet meetings. Like, we never saw them. We just never saw them. And so the idea that like Trump is suddenly letting cameras roll for an hour while he like has these sort of long extended diatribes during cabinet meetings is like something new. But like that's sort of divorced from Twitter. But it's all it all feeds. You know, he says the same sound bites in there that he does on Twitter, and it. it so I'm. It's. I think it's hard to pull apart. Like how much is Twitter and how much is this other stuff? I'm not sure that's a good answer. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, suppose that American voters did want uh, to like curb the harmful impacts of like illegal aliens and like its impact on American culture. Uh, don't you think that factors like the curbing of uh, the amount of illegal immigrants coming into the country, like the stopping of migrant caravans, don't you think that Trump has had an impact on that? And that in the case, like if that's what voters wanted, he has achieved that mission. And then also, um, in the case of migrant separation, like that was, uh, Obama also did that. And clearly, like Trump did it more 
but do you believe that the fact that Trump's doing it more is the only reason why it's highlighted by the press during his administration versus the fact that it wasn't really ever touched upon by uh, during the Obama administration? Sure, so um, a couple things. First, on the, um, uh, on the caravans, I, I think that what I came away with from the sort of, uh, from talking to an awful lot of people about what Trump has done to try to kind of limit illegal immigration across the southern border from Central America mostly, but you know, caravans specifically, um, is that most of the experts that we talked to said that the steps that he has taken um, were actually largely counterproductive. In other words, he imposed a policy of metering at the uh, ports of entry, which meant slowing down the number of people that could be processed through a, a port of entry, uh, illegal immigrants that could be processed for asylum, um, which had the effect of pushing tens of thousands of migrants to cross in between the port, the legal ports of entry and to try to cross where there, where there wasn't a port. One example of like a dozen things that I think if you talk to most immigration experts, suggests that like the actual policies that he tried to implement had a, a kind of perverse backward effect that actually increased the, the illegal entry, not made it better. Um, though, to your point of meeting the expectations of, of his supporters, I think that's true. I mean, I think undeniably he has, he is right when he says that his, his voters at least expected him to try to deal with this problem and he has, or he's tried to deal with it. And so I think that to the extent that he's, he's meeting, he's, he's, you know, the sort of promises made, promises kept thing, I think is, is legit. I mean, that's something that politicians should do. On the family separation thing, uh, I will correct you just a little. Um, all administrations, going back to Reagan, um, had a policy of separating children on rare occasions from adults when there was an imminent danger to the child or when there was a clear suspicion that, there, that the person who was bringing that child in was not really their parent. Those were the two criteria that all of the administrations for the last 40 years separated. And it was kind of minuscule in comparison. It was you know here or there, there would be these cases where they would suspect, they would, they would have indications that there was abuse going on, somebody was abusing a child or was really not their parent. And, they, and, and if you go back over the last 40 years, you can find examples. So, so it's true that, that, that it isn't zero. It is true that there were some separations in previous administrations. Um, Barack Obama, when, when, the, um, uh, when the surge of unaccompanied minors hit in 2014, um, there were a series of, and this was tens of thousands of unaccompanied minors that were, that were coming up into the United States. Some of them, most of them were unaccompanied, some of them came with other people. Um, there were a series of meetings in the Obama administration and one of the things put on the table was, should we wholesale separate children from adults as they come in so that we can prosecute the adults? And the answer was no. They, they rejected that. There are memos that I've seen. There, every discussion that I've had, there was never in the Obama administration a wholesale effort to uh, to separate children. That is a 
falsehood that the that President Trump has perpetuated over the last several year and a half as he's tried to get out of that mess. That is entirely different from what this administration did, starting with a trial in the what they call the El Paso sector in Texas that then went full-fledged in June of, uh, uh, May, May, June of 2018. So, I mean, it, 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 you know, the choice that this administration made to separate every child from a family that came up across the border illegally was, was one that um, has never been made before. Hi there, thank you very much. Um, earlier you mentioned that uh, when you had the chance to interview President Trump, there seemed to be a certain disconnect between um, you know, perhaps public out outcry and him feeling it. And so I was wondering, besides voting, what can college students or you know, young people like us do to make our voice heard or to try to have an impact that kind of gets through that disconnect? Um, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, I think, um, I mean, obviously the ultimate voice that you have is voting. So I think um, my sense is, although we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens in um, next year, um, whether or not Trump's actions, both on this and everything else, have, have motivated young people especially to, to be more active in politics and in elections. Um, I think that's kind of an open question still, but let's see what happens. Um, I guess, um, you know, I guess there's, there's lots of activism out there around this issue. Um, an example coming up in a couple weeks, the Supreme Court is going to take up the question of, of Trump's decision to end the DACA program. And um, I'm told by advocacy groups that they're going to hold protests in cities all over the country, in front of the court, but then also in cities um, uh, around the country. And I suspect that they would be happy, if that's your view, to have you join in one of those protests. I got to say, I mean, I'm skeptical, just knowing what I know, that the president pays a lot of attention to that. I mean. Um, you know, he, <clears throat> from the time he came into the White House, he has immersed himself in um, kind of information bubbles, both through the media that he consumes, Fox News and Breitbart and his Twitter followers and what have you, but also, you know, he's gone, he's, can't tell you the number of rallies that he's done since, since becoming president, and when you go to one of those, it just envelops him in a, in a, in a, uh, you know, in a kind of uh, affirmation of of his views on immigration and everything else, and I and I, I I mean I'm clearly not an activist. I don't think that way anyway. But like I, I'm not sure that how much he pays attention to it, which is a sad. You know, I mean I don't mean to be a downer about activism. I'm sure it's a great thing, but like I don't get the sense that he's you know paying a lot of attention to it, uh, frankly. But I think voting is important. This will be our final question for the evening. You were talking about um, just you know correcting some stuff, and with that, I just want to preface my question with the terminology around this entire issue and how the words "illegal aliens" and "illegal immigrants" 
are derogatory towards uh, the people being affected at the border and just like any point of entry into this country. Most of them, if not all the people affected right now are actually asylum seekers and refugees. With that uh, in mind, um, this is a misconception I think that comes one from the administration and also just how public everything has come to be. And so what role do you think the media plays in not only making the smaller corrections or using terminology that is not derogatory or dehumanizing, but um, what role does the media play in making sure that people and the audience that gets to see this aspect of the presidency also get to hear the other side of the story and the narrative of the people that are actually being affected by it? Um, thank you. Um, so I, I think we have, we in the media have come a long way in in um, trying to find language that is, and make sure that we're using language that is appropriate. Um, uh, we, I think, tend to use undocumented as opposed to illegal for the reasons that you suggest. I think we've sort of come to that. Um, um, and I think that, you know, we, I mean, one of the important things is not is to is to not forget the human stories that are and I and I um, you know we can sometimes get lost in the public policy debates right the debates over the numbers the debates over the you know um, uh, you know the the sort of legislative and regulatory fights and all of that and forget that there's real people and I I am you know, after several months of working on this book, Julie and I um, spent an afternoon where we uh, sat down for almost three and a half hours with a young woman who was, I think, maybe not old, much older than you, 23 maybe, um, who had um, crossed the border in Texas um, with her seven-year-old seven daughter. And had um, had been set, and the two of them had been separated, uh, and were separated for five almost five months. Um, and she just told us her story for like three and a half hours, and it was um, it was incredible to listen to. I mean, you know, you sort of you 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 get inured to it a little bit when you just hear the kind of politics of it, um, but listening to her describe both the moment of separation and what that was like, <clears throat> but also the weeks and weeks and weeks where she didn't know where the where her little girl was. More importantly, the little girl didn't know where her mother was. Um, you know, she the mom kept getting put on planes. She'd never been on a plane before. Um, you know, she described being marched up with, you know, um, uh, like cuffs on her legs and on her hands in an orange jumpsuit kind of with dozens of others, uh, sort of undocumented people who had come across, uh, crossed illegally, and had been marched up onto a plane for the first time and flown, but at that point didn't even know, was she being sent back to Honduras? Was she being, you know, where was she going? They wouldn't tell her, um, taken ultimately to Arizona and then moved again to California, all the while, you know, not having any idea where her daughter was. Um, we tell the story a little bit in the book. Um, um, but it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I think, you know, part of what, it's not the only thing we need to do. We need, I mean, I think we still do 
for those of us who cover policy and who cover politics still need to focus on that too. Um, but I, you know, and, and, and look, I mean, the truth is there are, um, you know, there are stories of, um, on the other side as well. I mean, there are stories of people who are affected by immigration. Um, there, it is, you know, the president and some of his aides talk, sometimes misstate the facts, but it's not untrue that immigration affects people. And, you know, we shouldn't be afraid, and I think we tried to do at the New York Times a pretty good job of talking about um, what are the real impacts on um, uh, employment, what are the real impacts on crime, um, and, and you know, some of those are statistical and some of those are human, and we should tell those stories too. And I think, I feel like, um, uh, I feel like, you know, maybe one of the good things that has come out of the president's sort of focus on this issue is I, I think there have been a lot more stories about human, human stories about people uh, than there have, than there were sort of before Trump kind of elevated this issue. all the time we have for questions tonight, so please join me in thanking Michael Shear as well as Melanie and Sophia for being our interviewer. Thank you.